Rochford and Kilhan. The TCC clarifies the law on final payments under the Construction Act. You're listening to Outlook, one of the commercial construction and international arbitration podcast series brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome to another 39 Essex Chambers episode. I'm David Sortel and with me I have John Dennis-Smith and Rebecca Drake. We're all barristers in 39 Essex Chambers construction and commercial team and today we'll be discussing the recent decision of Mr Justice Cockerell in the TCC in Rochford and Kilhan. The judgment in Rochford and Kilhan came out a few weeks ago. Whilst the decision was technically obiter, it did clarify the law on the rules surrounding the final date for payments and whether or not under the Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act 1998 can be linked to the provision of an invoice. Um, Rebecca Drake acted for the successful defendant in that case, Kilhan. So Rebecca, please can you tell us a little bit more about it? Well, John, whilst the decision is the first case to decide the point, the decision was technically obiter, although I imagine it will be fairly authoritative given the lack of other relevant case law. The hearing itself was a part eight hearing rather than an adjudication enforcement hearing. Although it will, of course, be relevant to many adjudications and indeed many contracts which are still in operation that have yet to be the subject of a dispute. The issue arose as to what the proper due date for payment and the final date for payment was. The party's contract said this. Works a lump sum. RCL, that's Rochford, will issue activity schedule to KCL, Kilhan, application date, end of month. Commercial valuations monthly as per attached payment schedule, end of month. Payment terms, 30 days from invoice as per attached payment schedule. SC payment certificate must be issued with invoice. Surely the payment schedule clarified matters. Well, that was part of the problem. No payment schedule was provided. And the judge did say if it had been, it seems far less likely that this dispute would have arisen. So the judge had to determine what the payment terms were. Now, as for the due date, Mrs Justice Cockerell said the phrase application date end of month was unclear and ambiguous, which was compounded by the fact that there was no payment schedule to support it. If there had been one, that might have solved the problem. Was there anything else that assisted the parties, like a course of dealing? No, there was no course of dealing which could have assisted in illuminating the phrase end of the month, for example, payments being routinely submitted on the last day of the month. And what did Rochford say it meant? Well, Rochford started off by saying it should be submitted on the last day of the month, but they then had to move from that position as it transpired that all eight payment applications had been submitted after the end of the month. Uh, I suppose, because we're lawyers and there were lawyers involved, that there were problems with defining what end of the month means too. Exactly. Mrs Justice Cockerell said the contention by Rochford that it meant literally the date at the end of the month was, by reference to business common sense, either absurd or very close to it. Uh, Yes, uh, if the final day of a calendar month is not a business day, let's say it's a Sunday, that would mean they would have to submit it on the Friday before, even though they may, if they're working over weekend, have two more days' work to do. Yes, and that isn't necessarily the only meaning, as Rochford then conceded. It could mean all sorts of other things. On the end of the month, by the end of the month, after the end of the month, the final business day, that was another contention by Rochford, or the final calendar day. 
So the lawyers did a great job in creating as much confusion as they could. Does that mean that in the absence of a clear due date, the scheme applies? Yes. And this meant that the due date was the date of the making of a claim by the payee, which was the date that Cohen made its claim. So although these were part eight proceedings to determine the true meaning of the contract, that was also the conclusion that the adjudicator had reached. What about the final date for payment then? From reading the judgment, I understand that was the most important part of the decision. Yes, it was. Once the judge had decided there was no clear and unambiguous date for payment, it wasn't controversial that the scheme should apply, and nor were the terms of the scheme controversial. So the contract said 30 days from invoice. Uh, Surely that's clear and unambiguous with regard to the final date for payment. Yes, well, I mean, it might appear to be clear and unambiguous at first glance, but the problem was that the contract didn't specify a date on which the invoice should be issued, and that meant it didn't comply with the Act. Now, the key provision of the Act is section 110, and the difference in wording between the requirements for a due date and a final date. So section 110 of the Act provides, first, every construction contract shall, A, provide an adequate mechanism, and that's the key word, for determining what payments become due under the contract and when, and B, provide for a final date for payment in relation to any sum which becomes due. So if you look at the difference, the final date for payment has to be specifically linked to the due date and not a mechanism. The word mechanism only appears in relation to the due date and not in relation to the final date for payment. So a mechanism such as the issuing of an invoice is specifically and expressly only permitted to ascertain the due date and not the final date. Rebecca, we're going into through the looking glass, um, it sometimes feels when we try to construe um, this particular distinction. Why is there this uh, distinction? Is there any reason to differentiate between the due date for payment on the one hand and the final date for payment on the other? Well, there are three reasons. First, it's important for the payer to be certain exactly how much time he or she has in which to serve a payless notice, the final date for payment being the date which is critical to that step. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, when it comes to interpreting the Act, there's a difference in drafting between Section 110, which we've just gone through, and Section 109.2, which refers to circumstances in which payments become due. Now, Section 109.2 states, the parties are free to agree the amounts of the payments and the intervals at which or circumstances in which they become due. Against that background, the drafting of section 110.1b, referring to the final date for payment, appears pointed. And thirdly, there were additions to section 110 in the form of subsections 1 capital A and 1 capital D, which were designed to put limits on the circumstances in which a payment can be due so as not to give the payer an unfair ability to control the process. This is basically the banning of the pay when paid mechanism. And they read as follows, 110 1 capital A says the requirement in subsection 1 little a to provide an adequate mechanism for determining what payments become due, and those are the critical words, under the contract, or when is not satisfied where a construction contract makes payment conditional on A, the performance of obligations under another contract, or B, a decision by any person as to whether obligations under another contract have been performed. 
subsection 1 capital D says the requirement in subsection 1 literally to provide an adequate mechanism for determining when payments become due under the contract is not satisfied where a construction contract provides for the date on which a payment becomes due to be determined by reference to the giving to the person to whom the payment is due of a notice which relates to what payments are due under the contract. Now, it would make no sense if such a limitation were intended in relation to subsection 1a, dealing with the due date, but not in relation to subsection 1b, dealing with the final date. And because the final date for payment is not mentioned in 1 capital A and 1 capital D, the inference must be that the possibility to peg the final date of payment to an event rather than a fixed period was never considered acceptable under the Act. And that's why 1 capital A and 1 capital D only need to mention the due date and not the final date. I'm just wondering how this interacts uh, with other case law. Uh, so there are other decisions in which the final date of payment uh, does appear to be linked to the provision of an invoice. I'm thinking in particular the case that Mr Justice Cockrell referred to in paragraph 20 of her judgment, and that was Manor Asset Limited against Demolition Services Limited, uh, 2016 EWHC uh, 222, where Mr Justice Edward Stewart uh, gave effect to express terms agreed between the parties, including a term of payment to be made within 72 hours of receipt of invoice, which he held determined the final date for payment. That's because in that case, the contract provisions were such that the due date was when the invoice was received. So that would still mean that the final date for payment would be linked to the due date. Payment to be made within 72 hours of receipt of invoice is effectively the same as saying payment to be made within 72 hours of the due date, which would comply with the requirements of the Act. Rebecca, this is an obiter decision, so is it a matter of parting interest or do you think it's going to be likely to be followed in a decision which makes this absolutely clear as being the correct decision to be followed? Well, John, I think it probably will be followed. I think the reasoning is correct, not just because we won, but I think from a legal point of view, it's correct. I think there are several reasons for the decision and to me, it's the only decision that could have been reached sensibly. So I would like to see it followed and I think it will be followed. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.